Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Professor Graham Cumming. Graham is the director of the ARC Centre of Excellence Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University in Australia. He's an ecologist by training who has increasingly focused on social ecological functions, problems and resilience in systems. This means much of Graham's research is about build is trying to understand how do we build resilient systems? How do we allow for transformation? How do we encourage adaptation? How does this apply to both to ecosystems and human systems? And of course, how can we use this to better understand and tackle the climate crisis? We had a fascinating conversation about resilience. What does it mean for a system to be resilient? Is a resilient system the only way that a system should be? Uh, how can we map it onto human systems? How important is diversity in resilience? How can we use complexity theory to better understand resilience? How can we get past our own personal biases to understand resilience? This is a really, really, really sort of far-reaching conversation that covers everything from political polarity to coral reefs. And I really enjoyed speaking with Graham and getting the opportunity to pick his brain. I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page, where everyone now has access to the interview transcripts. Becoming a paid subscriber or patron also supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world. I expose dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you who are already supporting this podcast and my work, thank you so much. Well, Graham, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Could you give a little bit of background about your research uh, for those that maybe haven't come across your work yet? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I work on quite a range of topics. Um, a lot of my research focuses on questions around sustainability and resilience. And I also spend, I'm not sure, maybe 10 or 20% of my time doing what I think of as pure ecology. So um, I try and maintain a a link to my disciplinary beginnings in ecology, mm -hmm. but I'm also quite interdisciplinary in terms of what I work on. Why are there different fields at this stage of the climate crisis, sustainability and ecology? Well, it's um, a lot of researchers situate themselves in one particular area. So if, if I feel, uh, what can I bring to the table that, say, a sociologist doesn't bring? Um, it's a deep understanding of ecosystems and how they work. And I find that a useful starting point. So oftentimes when I'm working in sustainability, I might be thinking about a, a problem that's outside ecology, but uh, has parallels to things that happen in ecosystems. Or alternatively, I can bring insights from ecology into a, into a particular problem. Mm. Could you give examples of some things that you've recently worked on? Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'll start with the pure ecology. We've been doing some work looking at seabird populations and trying to understand uh, why they're declining um, on the Great Barrier Reef of Australia and uh, focusing on trying to understand uh, differences in movement capabilities between different individuals in a population. 
and how that might translate ultimately into the ability of that population to persist or not. So that's an example of a much more focused um, ecological research. Mm -hmm. Then I, I've been working with collaborators in Southern Africa. Um, we've been doing this now about a decade, looking at protected areas and their role in Southern Africa. Um, there's a whole different range of kinds of protected area, and we've been trying to understand what makes them resilient, what doesn't make them, you know, what makes them um, well-suited or poorly suited to the environment that they're in uh, and how that affects their, their mission to kind of maintain key elements of biodiversity and ecosystem services into the future. When did this word resilience become a part of, you know, ecological um, study and also socio-ecological study? So it goes back, I think at first, the earliest roots of the word go back to like the 40s or 50s when people were thinking about materials and the different ways in which materials respond to stress. And a resilient material was one where you could change the shape um, without destroying the material. Mm. And Buzz Holling picked up on that and a couple of other ecologists uh, back in the 60s and 70s. So that's where the, the more ecological usages of resilience uh, come from. And back then it was originally conceived as an idea of returning to some kind of stable state. So the ball in the cup metaphor was kind of where they started. You imagine a ball that's rolling around in a cup and you can flick it and it'll roll up the sides, but it'll return to the middle um, yeah. after some period. So uh, curiously enough, um, I mean, there's a whole branch of ecological theory that still uses basically that definition of a return time to some stable point. People tend to talk these days about favoring things with high resilience, but under that definition, a high resilience would be a slower return time, right? The, the longer it takes to return, the larger mm. the metric you would get for resilience. So things have changed a bit over time. And then uh, yeah. more, more modern definitions uh, introduce a lot more complexity. So I can dig into some of those if you'd like. Yes, please. Yeah. So um, a lot of what people think about these days is, is to do with what are the key feedbacks that maintain a system in a particular arrangement or configuration? So in ecology, there was a paradigm shift starting in the 70s, but sort of moving on into the 90s and, and even more recently, where people realized that most ecosystems are not in any kind of equilibrium. So um, they're changing all the time. And there's some... Mm -hmm. uh, sort of elements that maintain a level of stability within a system, but other things that are, that are, you know, changing the whole time. Uh, a good example of that would be something like, um, if you think about vegetation cover, which is quite an important variable in a terrestrial system, as vegetation grows, it slowly gets more and more flammable and build up, uh, biomass, you build up leaf litter, you build up dead things basically that can burn dead plant matter. And, um, over time that can lead to a situation where you can support a large fire. So then you get a fire coming through the ecosystem and that returns it to some kind of a less forested or less wooded or less vegetated state. And then classical ecology would say, well, the whole process starts all over again. So you have a system that's in a continual state of flux, but mm -hmm. if you think about it at a broader scale, um, some elements remain consistent. So you, you in theory could always have the same species of trees and grasses and other things, um, within that system but just different, different areas and different stages of uh, moving back towards a more wooded state or, or being burnt. So that, that's one kind of 
way of thinking about resilience is what are the, what are the feedbacks? So when I talk about feedback, um, you've got a situation there where the the fire uh, reduces the biomass in the in the system, and then there's a feedback from the loss of biomass to the potential for fire. Right. So after a fire, there's much less potential to support fire. Feedbacks are about things where A influences B and B influences A. So in that example, the fire as a process influences the, the growth of vegetation and that in turn influences the fire. So it's quite a potentially quite a tight feedback. In reality, you'd have all, all kinds of other things like herbivores in there, which are also having an impact on the vegetation. Just to stop on that for a moment, because it's... Um... I really, really love this idea that um, you have to constantly being sort of, you have to constantly zoom out in order to right. understand how things fit together. And yet, I find it's kind of at um, like this this concept is very much at odds with um, sort of the post enlightenment era in science, in which the idea was to atomize everything and individualize everything as much as possible, and to understand that uh, systems are not in constant equilibrium, but rather like that constant state of flux has cycles and eventually I might be paraphrasing here massively, but balances itself out. Is that a kind of correct layman's understanding of it? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. So, so what Buzz Hulling proposed was that things go through cycles naturally. Okay. In ecology, there's for many years, starting back in the 1920s, there was this idea of succession that you had a, a gradual and predictable shift from one habitat type into another. So for example, if you abandon a, an old field, from agriculture, it'll gradually get colonized by weeds and then by shrubs and then eventually lead into back into forest if it was originally in a forested area. Mm. That would be a typical example of succession. And that goes back, those ideas go back to the 1920s. But Holling's insight was to take that kind of paradigm and say, well, there's also a part where you might get a fire through or some other major disturbance, maybe a cyclone, maybe, you know, the different disturbances are different to, are, are relative to different systems. And that that would then kind of reset everything, but he focused much more on that process of resetting and said, well, this is actually an important part of the dynamic. Mm. And so he coined what he termed the adaptive cycle, where you have a, the idea of a system changing continually through time, through a process of kind of growth and then, um, some kind of reset basically, or some kind of mm -hmm. massive systemic change. So he linked together with a bunch of other people who were working across a range of different systems and they started to look for more more of this kind of pattern and they started finding similar things happening, you know, across a much wider range of systems, basically where there was something about the way that things grew and developed, um, that ultimately led to their own downfall in a, in a strange sense, you know, so a, a very mm -hmm. big company might get regulated or, or cut down in some way. Um, you see the same thing in many businesses where managers get into a position and then, you know, they come in with a lot of new ideas and after five or 10 years. Perhaps they're getting a bit stale on the job and, um, mm. you know, and then the leader, the good CEO will precipitate some kind of shakeup, move them around, give them a new position, you know, put them back in a situation where they have to rebuild and regenerate. And so the, the conceptual parallels are appealing. You can see this happening in a whole lot of places around the world. So Holling hoped that resilience as a concept would kind of, um, capture some of this dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, I'd, I'd say in recent years. People have realized that the resilience on its own is not enough. So there's been increasing in interest in some of the other aspects of resilience. Two in particular, I'd say, are, are coming, becoming increasingly more kind of noticed at the moment. One of them is transformation. 
Mm -hmm. So in a sense, resilience is like an absence of transformation. If you transform into something new and completely different, you could say you've lost resilience, right? But oftentimes what we actually want to do is transform something quite, quite heavily to get out of a dysfunctional system um, and into something that works much better. You know, global ca capitalism is destroying the environment. So we need something transformative. I, I don't want global capitalism to be highly resilient. I want it to become less resilient and actually shift into something different. And then the other concept that, that um, Holling was well aware of, but didn't, didn't find a good way of including in the body of resilience theory, I don't think, was adaptation. So the whole time things are adapting to change and responding to change. In biological systems, that's often a bit of a passive uh, mechanism acting on diversity. You know, so Darwin's idea is you have a lot of, a high a range of diversity in different species in an ecosystem. The ones that are adapted to local conditions at any one point in time will survive and the others die out. Mm. And so that diversity plus selection gives you evolution in the kind of Darwinian framework, right? So uh, Holling and others thought, well, something similar probably applies more generally where you have diversity of options and that offers a range of choices in a way and people uh, select or um, circumstances in some way select whichever solution is most effective at a given point in time. So ad adaptation is a key, it's very tightly linked to resilience, but it's also, it's got some different elements, right? It's not always as well, as well defined or as well understood as resilience on it, on its own. There's so many questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> surely when thinking about the complexity of systems and when thinking about their inherent dynamic state and yeah. thinking about the fact that it's multiple things. And I'm going to go with the philosophy capital T because I'm not a scientist, you know, performing different functions, you know, just imagining all of that. I mean, surely then just mapping that framework um, etymologically even, and I don't know if that's correct, but it would be wiser to focus on resilience and transformation and adaptation. Like any resilient system is going to be multifaceted and have different parts of it that are responding in different ways. Because, I mean, that reflects the complexity of the, the, the natural world, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a big branch of complexity theory, which says you need to adopt multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's quite well recognized in the field, I think. So I think, uh, you know, some people seem to feel that there's kind of one, one concept, like the, like the Dark Lord's ring, you know, that's going to yeah. hold it all together. Um, yeah. There's a lot of work showing that that's not going to be the case. And even if you take a relatively simple um, problem, then you've still got the observer problem. So uh, each of us comes to a problem either inside or outside the system of interest with our own perspective. And there's mm. no way of saying my perspective is more valid than yours in, in any situation, right? Um, and so that yeah. creates ambiguity. And sometimes what people perceive as the problem is going to be different. So to me, it might be, um, you know, there's a, a marine conservation problem that's saying it might be clearly a, to me a problem of overfishing, but to someone else, it might be some other kind of a problem that they perceive a very different issue with governance or, or some other aspect of it. This is sort of the problem with expertise today, in a sense, right? That uh, yeah, yeah. everybody is so well-trained and has so <laughs> much knowledge. Um, and, yet, and yet nobody's really uh, been trained in hundreds of years to see the, the the bigger picture and even then when you're looking at the bigger picture you still need to fill in the gaps of experts and different teams on how to approach yeah. an issue i find it such 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 an interesting thing especially doing this podcast and interviewing so many experts 
And I have to say, the experts I get on the show always tend to hold up their hands and be like, well, you know, <laughs> no, we don't have the one solution. But I do see on like science Twitter or climate Twitter or whatever, people genuinely say, right, okay, that's, it's that one thing. That is the one thing that we need to focus on. And that's the solution. And then even if you look at a policy level, I mean, carbon emissions, how the hell did that happen? That that became the world's focus. That one singular greenhouse gas. Oh, yeah, if we solve that, if we manage to remove that from the atmosphere, then um, all of our problems will be solved. The validity of the subjectivity, observer problem, quite revealing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back a little bit and ask you, based on what we were saying before we went into transformation adaptation, are we built, and when I say we, living things on this planet? Given the nature of systems, given what you were saying about the fact that they tend to grow and then ultimately lead to their own decay, are we built to grow? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just thinking about that. Um, I, I'm not sure if there's a simple answer to that. I mean, of course, yeah. there's not a simple answer, right? I would say that, you know, th there's nothing intrinsic that says you can't grow sustainably. I don't, I don't think there's an... I don't think there's a sort of philosophical reason why humanity should drive itself to extinction. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think we've already been, been uh, quite successful in a number of ways, um, particularly at things like sequestering energy and resources. And humanity's also achieved some incredible things. But it seems like there are, um, how to put it, like we just... Rationally, I don't think we can go on growing forever in the way that we have mm -hmm. historically. So there are questions around resilience where you would think some of the work that people are doing on resilience, if it could somehow enter, you know, public consciousness more widely, shouldn't theory help to make us more sustainable? So I, I don't think sustainability is impossible. I do think it could be very difficult for human society as we know it now to, to obtain or reach. And I think, I think getting there may be quite painful in the sense that there may be a lot of local and possibly a few global crashes of different things mm. before people realize, you know, learn from those experiences and realize what needs to be done. I ask because it seems to me the main problem that we face, global capitalism, really good example, absolute nightmare of an economic system, clearly not working <laughs> for, for anyone apart from a very, very small few. Um, and it would be very, very painful to dismantle that, but very good in the long run. And yet there seems to be this kind of call um, in the world, you know, for people to turn to nature. I mean, look at how the earth balances itself. Look at the equilibrium of natural systems um, or, you know, we're built to be collaborative, which I fundamentally agree with. And yet kind of ignoring that drive that we do see all around the world, which is for things to grow and then perhaps reach a form of not homeostasis, but to, oh, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? To move into a stage of, of slower growth, less explosive growth, and then decay. How do we align that very natural process that we see in living things with a definite necessity to contract you know, our materials use, our energy use, our violent economic extractive system. So I'd say, um, 
you know, people obviously are, we're animals and we've evolved with certain limitations and capabilities, but at the same time, we're quite different from most other animals in some quite critical ways, right? So I'm, I'm not sure that we can sort of blindly take what we see in ecosystems and apply it to people in quite the same way. You know, humans have got this complicated culture and technologies. We've been able to upscale mm. things we do in a way that no other animal has managed. And uh, we also do things, you know, we're, we're capable of anticipating a future, for example, and acting on that quite potentially quite far ahead. Um, and we use, we use structures. We're capable of, of, um, transmitting knowledge between generations or between individuals in a way that's, you know, far outstrips any other organism on the planet at the moment, as far as I'm aware. So there's a whole lot of reasons why I think we need to recognize that we're also a bit different, um, mm. and that we might need some, uh, particular kinds of management that, that's not going to come from anywhere other than ourselves, unless we degrade ecosystems to the point where that starts limiting us. So I think, um, the problems come from humanity, but I think the solutions also lie within humanity to, to some of what's going on. Mm. Yeah, surely, unless there is um, a god up on high that wants to step <laughs> in with a 10-point plan. <laughs> but, I mean, what does, what does living sustainably look like for you in, in your vision of a, of a better world? What does that mean, sustainability? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I think, I think there's a number of things that I can see as obvious steps on the way. I'm not sure how it, quite how it all comes together. So, uh, I guess following the model of plants and getting most of our energy from the sun, mm -hmm. um, and then reducing our impacts on ecosystems, our direct impacts. I have a feeling that a sustainable world would be more equitable, mm -hmm. um, with a much more even production and distribution of resources, uh, fewer, very wealthy individuals and, and much fewer, very poor. It's hard to quantify exactly, but I, I, you know, I feel like that's a bit of a prerequisite somehow. Yeah. Improving equity. I think also it's not something that we can achieve, um, instantly or in the very short term. I think, I think society is going to have to go through a gradual adjustment. It could be a couple of hundred years, basically, of recalibrating values, expectations, uh, reducing population growth rates, um, creating more sustainable agricultural systems. I think food systems are critical to the whole problem as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so it's not enough just to get all our energy from direct from the sun rather than from fossil fuels, but mm -hmm. we also need to think about systems of production and distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think, uh, I, I don't know if there's ever, you know, if there's a fair chance for a sort of more genuinely equitable political situation or a conflict free world or those kinds of things. But I think that the challenge is going to be to make sure that those are, those problems are happening locally rather than with global impact. Like yeah. conflict, <laughs> yeah. mini wars. <laughs> not, not just that, but also sort of, uh, I think there's always going to be, it's quite likely that at some point, somewhere, someone's going to be doing something that's degrading an ecosystem, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But if we think about the system as a whole and its kind of total adaptive capacity or its ability to cope with change, its resilience, um, that's okay if things are regenerating and intact or regrowing in another part of the world. Isn't that quite a dangerous perspective? <laughs> <laughs> it's a slippery slope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because this is the thing, if you zoom out far enough, it's just, well, the whole planet's there and as long as we save half of it or whatever, then, you know, it'll be fine. 
And with that uneven distribution of power and resources that we do have currently, I mean, God, when you do look at how indigenous peoples are treated around the world, how their land rights are stampled all over and how their resources are stolen from them in order to fund um, and power countries on the other side of the world. I mean, that's uh, that's very much zooming out and achieving a simplistic reduction which alienates um, living beings just because mm-hmm. they're on the other side of the planet rather than introducing them into the complexity of the global system. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a sustainable future, what, what I was saying before about equity, I think you've got to have a, mm. a much higher level of equality for, for anything like that to work, right? But I, yeah. I'm also, I also don't believe there's like a perfect nirvana in which everybody wanders through the woods holding hands with lions and <laughs> dancing in circles, you know? I don't think that's, I don't think that's practical. No, and I don't think it's what uh, necessarily all of us want either. <laughs> Hold on to the lion, yeah. Walk through the woods forever. Nope. So some of these questions about um, about equity and um, about sort of more general resilience, I think it, it's hard to say, you know, what that could look like in the long term. And and I think as we've just explored, it's a, it's a bit of a kind of an, an uncertain vision. There is a project um, that some of my colleagues are leading called Seeds of a Good Anthropocene. And mm. what they've been trying to do is to identify projects that are laying groundwork for what a future might look like, right? So so that's a, they've got a really nice website and that would be a good project to look at um, to think about what, what a sustainable future could look like. And I think um, a couple of things are quite obvious from that, right? It's going to be heterogeneous. So there's going to be a lot of variance in, in what solutions are developed and where they're applied. And I think it needs to be a lot more equitable, um, but it doesn't mean that all the problems go away or all the issues are resolved. You know, there'll still be infant mortality. There'll still be problems with healthcare. There'll still be, you know, a whole range of other, other kinds of question around well-being and, and um, uh, how people interact with each other, you know, how people respect each other. All of those things are, are not going to be resolved overnight. But I think there's enough um, going on in the world at the moment that provides evidence that um, there are a range of potential solutions that could make things a whole lot better. And if one could somehow um, spread those or you know, get more of the world engaged in that kind of way, then we would certainly be on a better path. And I don't know where it takes us eventually, but I think it's a lot better than what we're on at the moment. Sure, but it's a bit of a chicken in the egg scenario, isn't it? It's in the same, you know, we have so much data, we have so much information, we have a lot of fantastic empowered individuals and communities trying things, mm-hmm. but we also have an oligarchy. And unless they are uh, willing to either disempower themselves, which looks increasingly unlikely, or unless, I don't know, something else happens, we seem to be in this very impossible situation of we know vaguely what direction we need to go. And even if we don't know where we would end up, and yet we can't seem to get out of the starting blocks to go there because of the inequity and inequality of power and resources and, and finances in the world. Yeah, well, I wonder if this whole climate change um, situation that, that we're in at the moment might not offer a window of opportunity mm. for broader social change. So, you know, I've been intrigued to see um, European countries trying to get away from use of reliance on Russian uh, coal and gas, for example. And, um, you know, that kind of thing strikes me as if, it's, if, it's, if people start to believe it's possible, um, it can trigger more of a shift to renewables more rapidly. But more than that, there's a kind of a way in which um, 
if those promises and processes are followed through and it can lead to social change and a reduction in the impact of some of the groups that have been dominating kind of global action and global discourse. So here in Australia, I think the, the fossil fuel industry has a huge impact um, on government decision-making. Mm -hmm. So I think if, if government were less reliant on those industries for income, um, you know, we might see better decisions being made. Yeah, I think uh, one of the best overnight policies to introduce would be to cut subsidies to all of these um, industries or in industrialized destroyers like fossil fuels, like industrialized fishing, like industrialized agriculture. Because even when you look at the, I can't remember who it was on the show. I think it might have been Jason Bradford who said, you know, we're the only species that uses more energy to create our food than we do, <laughs> than we get when we ingest it. It's um, net energy negative and it's daft. Um, so if you stop subsidizing all of these things, essentially, then the force of capitalism surely will encourage these industries and these people to make innovative decisions even uh, within our current paradigm to, to do better and to remain um, relevant as we move into the future. But still, nonetheless, you know, the amount of destruction that could be done in the interim. I mean, you work on corals. Coral was a huge part of the global dialogue what, two years ago, I think. That was when all the coral documentaries came out. And everybody was like, the coral reefs are dying. And I mean, are they? Is it still happening? They kind of fell off the radar. Yeah, no, it's still happening. We just yeah. had another mass bleaching event this year. Um, but to come back to the subsidies, uh, I would say, um, you know, that there's another question there, though. So someone from the other side of the fence might say, well, what's going to happen to all the people who, you know, rely on their motor cars to mm -hmm. get around? If you cut those subsidies, it's going to have an impact on, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a big impact on the general well-being of the population, you can't just do that without providing some alternative, you know, power supplies I, and energy supplies. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so it's not mm -hmm. something that can be done overnight, I don't think. If those companies depend on those subsidies for their own survival, and if people depend on the products of those companies at the moment, then you've got to do it gradually, right? I absolutely agree with you. I mean, first of all, define survival. Uh, <laughs> fossil <laughs> fossil fuel uh, profits certainly for uh, British companies and companies in Europe are sky high, and they don't pay taxes in these countries, and yet they get subsidised. So, um, but yes, I completely agree, and I think that that is why campaigns like Just Stop Oil, fantastic intention from climate activists perhaps misunderstanding the extent to which we are a fossil fuel economy and that 4 billion people would just die overnight without the capacity to heat their homes or or feed themselves or go to work. Um, so these changes indeed have to be gradual and it goes, this comes back into complexity. The subsidy thing is a, it is a good policy. It's a good policy idea rather than banning them or rather than whatever, you know, you're just kind of twisting their arm. And yet it also has to be done in tandem with a whole bunch of other policies like improving access to public transport or introducing a universal basic income or providing cheap, clean energy to, to you know, our nation's most vulnerable. And it seems to me that politically, at least, um, we are not coming up with resilient solutions to the climate crisis in the sense of the nature of the matter is so complex, it requires such a complex ecosystem of responses done simultaneously, and it almost seems beyond um, comprehension how to, how do I put this? I mean, 
we've created a world over thousands and thousands of years and that has exploded in growth over 500 years of a fossil fuel economy. And yet then we're trying to, in a period of just a few years, map solutions directly onto that without the same amount of time and brains and people and networks to, you know, build a, a culture that we would normally have over hundreds of years. I mean, it just seems like such an impossible task, a worthwhile challenge, but an impossible task. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree it's a difficult task. I, I don't think impossible, though. I think it's I think it's plausible that, you know, we get somewhere better in the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly how I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not an, I'm not an energy policy or, or uh, industry expert in that sense. But I, th- I certainly think there's a lot to be said for pooling different levels of expertise and of people from different disciplines to try to get sure. that, you know, that, that some of the reports are quite clear. The IPCC reports, for example, have good recommendations for what we could do now immediately um, and what needs to be done in the slightly longer term. Yeah, could being the, <laughs> the the most important word in that sentence. I mean, yes, we know things that would need to be done and um, whether or not they're going to happen is is a whole other thing. And I just wonder if in what you've studied uh, in resilient systems and ecology and ecosystems and all this stuff, is there a way to map um, to map and assess and create complexity in a human system that we can learn from our own ecosystem, from studying the ecosystems of, of the world? Well, there's lots of tools for mapping out and trying to explore complexity, but there's also a, a problem with, like, there's a fundamental limit on human cognition. Mm. You know, we can only consider up to a certain number of variables at the same time, and we can feed them all into a big complex model. Mm-hmm. But then our measurement error is often, you know, more than what the, what the actual outputs of the model will tell us. There are some very complex models, things like the global climate models, um, mm-hmm. that work quite well, I think, and, and surprisingly effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but doing that where you've got people who make individual decisions is, is much more complex because of how people are. So I think uh, values tend to be one of those things that changes quite slowly in society. Most research says a 30 or 40 year time frame over which values change. Oh, really? And um, I think we're seeing some changes in values and I'm curious to see what happens with the, you know, the generation who's now kind of late teens um, and the way they've had to, had to grow up in a world with a, a very different set of challenges from what I had when I was a kid. Um, and I think, so my impression is we're seeing shifts in values, but also not necessarily in a direction that's um, supportive of more sustainable solutions, right? I think we're seeing a, a big divergence as well. So you have places like America, where it seems like society is becoming increasingly polarized, in fact, into different mm-hmm. camps. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. makes it much harder to get things done politically. Well, same in Europe. I mean, look at the yeah. election results in France. Le Pen, yeah. the extreme, yeah, she was right behind him. Yeah. What is that symptom of, do you think, that increasing polarization? Just like the disintegration of our political systems? I'm not sure. It's, I mean, there's a lot of, um, so there's some parallels in ecology where you have this kind of excellent um, splitting essentially you have a process that's pretty much stochastic it's spread all over the place uh-huh. um, and then you see it forming into two groups so uh, one example would be dung beetles um, uh-huh. some some species you have 
you have large and small males. Um, and, and being large or being small has different benefits. Being intermediate um, is, is not so good, basically. So a, a large male is strong enough to push another one off a dung ball and take it away. And uh -huh. the little ones uh, get advantages in, in sneaky mating and that kind of stuff. And you can model this process as a process of evolutionary divergence. And it, it shows you when you, when you enter the different, some of the different constraints and details that you actually, you know, there's kind of a rational reason why you end up with these two different sizes. And you see some similar stuff in, for example, in brand switching behavior. So if you've got five different brands of ketchup to pick from this, there's, it's quite likely that there's one that everybody likes and one that, you know, people don't like, but then over time it might gradually split into two brands being much more popular than the others. You know, these kind of processes where populations diverge are not um, unusual in chaotic systems or, or partially chaotic systems. It goes with complexity. The question is then what, you know, what's the outcome? If you're in one of those groups and you, and you try to uh, overturn the demands of the other group. Um, and I think that's a, that's a much trickier one because ideally a, an equitable solution is going to include everybody, right? It needs to be satisfying ideally across the full political spectrum. Yes. Although this is another question I've had on my mind, um, recently is the validity or the feasibility of trying to roll out, you know, a global value system or a global political system that everybody will ascribe to, or everybody would be happy to ascribe to outside of a sense of emergency because we know that pe people do and people can we've seen that from you know the long-term studies that were done during periods of war people are really happy in an emergency to just kind of take one for the team and do whatever needs to be done uh, but outside of that i'm wondering whether it's possible whether it'd be a good idea and so i find like that concept of ecological splitting very very interesting i mean do these dung beetles then learn to live, to, to coexist quite harmoniously in yeah, the same... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an evolutionary process that happens over time. I mean, the, the existence is not harmonious, right? Because they're competing yeah. for mates and for dung balls. Yeah. And as they go, it just happens that there's a stable way of, of doing that um, at either end of the extreme. Either being extremely large or extremely small is, works well, but being intermediate doesn't. That's so interesting. And do their populations <laughs> tend to remain quite balanced population yeah the population levels. as a whole remains remains fine and obviously if there are fewer small males it may become more advantageous to to be small uh -huh. um, and so on so there are uh, as is common with these kind of processes there are some benefits that tend to maintain that bimodalism that split bimodalism. within the population yeah mm. and i can imagine in human society as well there may be something similar going on where it's it's beneficial to be one or the other and not to be in the middle but I think, I mean, ultimately, uh, the, I think the challenge globally is more to, to try and depoliticize some of the issues. I think it's within my own lifetime that climate change, for example, has become a political issue. Mm. You know, I can still remember a point when a conservative government might just as well have taken climate action as a, as a very sort of left-wing government. I don't think, yeah. I don't think that that perspective has to be the way it is uh, in many places in the world right now. You know, and I think it's about trying to understand the science and say, well, what does the science tell us? And whichever side of this political spectrum you fall on to realize that, you know, the validity of science. So the challenge in some ways is more to convince people of the validity of science. And I don't think we need homogeneity in political beliefs. I agree, but yeah. I think science has also become politicized. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's partly a deliberate 
um, campaign by groups that have a vested interest in the findings of science being disregarded, you know, for mm -hmm. example, the fossil fuel industry. The great irony being the amount of science and technology they use to, um, <laughs> to do their <Yeah>. work. <laughs> yes, I, um, I completely agree. And then I wonder if we should try and zoom out one step further and think, well, okay, so if it's not just climate change, it's been politicized, not just science, it's been politicized. I mean, well, arguably all of human existence now has been politicized, hasn't it? Yeah. So one of the things, um, I was part of the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, and one of the things we spent a lot of time debating there and thinking about global scenarios was what can lead to value shift or what can lead to more, you know, global action, basically. Yeah. Um, and it's really difficult to say. I think, I think in some ways that people respond to disaster or catastrophe. But the trouble we've got with many ecological problems is that by the time catastrophe strikes, it's too late to solve the problem. Right. So we're seeing with the coral reefs, for example, they're the kind of canary in the coal mine ecosystem, saying the world's getting too hot, the ocean's getting too warm, and it's going to kill, you know, a large number of corals. And, uh, the problem there is then that even if we were able to restore or to stop emissions today, there's still a locked in level of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is going to lead to marine heat waves for the next 10, 20, 30 years, probably until the earth has processed that, that CO2, I think the half-life of CO2 in the atmosphere is something like 200 years. So we're already locked into an unsustainable situation from a perspective of the coral reef. So it's no longer really about maintaining anything like the status quo, but more um, trying to understand what we can do to uh, help reefs adapt or respond to change in some way, mm -hmm. and also to take the pressure off so that they don't um, degrade or decline faster than, than they have to basically, and to create a space where natural selection and other kind of natural processes can try to fill that gap. You know, there's billions of corals on the Great Barrier Reef. And um, billions of them are still alive and they're obviously undergoing an extreme selective event, but it's possible that out of those billions of corals, some of them have higher natural resistance to, to heating, um, um and may be able to survive and prosper and, and propagate and, and rebuild the reef. I don't have high hopes for, for human efforts to simulate that process. Yeah. yeah. 30 to 40 years to change values. What did that um, group then, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, apart from emergency, <laughs> did you come to a conclusion about what it does take to, to change values? No, not really. Well, not a strong one. So we were debating it from the point of view of, of um, if you want to think we were trying to develop scenarios, global futures, um, and think of alternative ways the world could change and develop in the next 50 years, basically 20 years and 50 years. Mm -hmm. And trying to work out, so what's realistic and what's not, you know, there'd been some previous scenario exercises where people had said, well, what if, you know, what if the world, if everybody just starts realizing, waking up to ecological degradation, how feasible is that? Is that possible that we could just see a massive U-turn and a whole lot of different policies and other people within the group saying, well, no, that's not feasible. That's never going to happen. And so I think what we ended up with was kind of a mix where in scenarios with a more positive kind of ending subjectively, you have some successes and some failures, but, um, it's enough to gradually change people's attitudes. But I don't think that problem has been, been resolved in the sense of, you know, and again, I'm not sure in some ways, I'm not sure I'd want it to be resolved. No, I'm, I'm not sure yeah. I'd want someone to change my attitudes for me or my values. 
yes, this is uh, yeah another chicken in the egg scenario yeah. where if we had a magic wand and we could change education systems and we could turn everybody into critical thinkers and give them the educational support that they need and then allow them to become adults and make up their own minds about the world. And hopefully a vast majority of people would have a very decent value system that wasn't linked to internalized capitalism and extractivism and individualism and competition. But we don't have that time. And yet to change value systems without going down the route of education only reveals the urgency of the situation that we are in and could also in a long term lead to, well, you start changing value systems without actually teaching people, you know, that's religious doctrine. And those things, you know, tend to stick about for thousands of years and get us into all sorts of trouble along the way. So it's such a difficult, we, we are in such a difficult um, period now leading up to 2030 of decisions have to be made and triggers have to be pulled. And how do you do it in a way that reflects the best of the future that we want to have? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think what we can say though, is that, um, solutions need to be, uh, need to be made transparently and democratically and reflecting the diversity of society and the range of different people within society. So I think a lot of these things, um, the process is in some ways as important as the eventual decision that gets made. Mm. Right. So with the wrong processes. Um, you'll get the wrong outcomes. And I think one of the things that society can start to work on or address more feasibly is perhaps getting some of the process right. You know, if it's not possible everywhere in the world, but I think if individuals within society push for correct processes and correct levels of inclusion and diversity in decision-making, I, I feel like that's more likely to lead to decent outcomes. That's very interesting. <clears throat> and do you think we have the time for that? Well, I don't know, but we, I don't, I don't think we're going to get anywhere unless we, unless we include, you know, more people, more diverse people and find more equitable solutions. I don't, I don't think, um, positive lasting change is going to be possible without that, whatever the time frame. Yeah. So you don't believe in the, uh, global dictator paradigm? No. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I was going to ask if you do. Um, no, that's, um, <laughs> complicated. I would say that, first of all, I fundamentally believe that it is impossible to have somebody with that sort of, um, like with a prefrontal cortex big enough to make all those decisions. But even if, um, that magical creature did exist, and I think it's a very, very short term solution that has very, very dangerous long term repercussions. Uh, because if that's a system that you put into place, a it's like it's like the ancient Greeks, you know, how do you replace a philosopher king? That age-old uh, problem. But also, I think that the situation that we are in today, the modernity aspect of it, is not just a problem of the type of fuel we use, but equity um, and distribution and fairness. And so I think that ascribing all power to one person would be a hell of a backward slide um, and result in very dangerous repercussions in the future, even if it did save, you know, 8 billion people from dying immediately. Um, I 
think that if we cannot find a way to get there collaboratively, then there's not much point anyway, which is um, quite dramatic, but (laughs) (laughs) that is what I believe. Right, Graham, I think I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing all these very complex and wonderful things with me. Well, it's a pleasure and thank you. I hope you've um, been able to get something, something useful out of this. Massively, really, really. I've taken so many notes. I have uh, one final question for you, which is who would you like to platform? I'd suggest Gary Peterson might be a good person to chat with. Mm-hmm. He's based at the University of Stockholm at the Stockholm Resilience Center. That'd be wonderful. Right. Thank you so much, Graham. Nice to meet you, Rachel. Take care. You too. If you want to learn more about Graham's work, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. A huge, huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters. This work just wouldn't be happening without you. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week.